Welcome to The Roundup, a North Queensland-based podcast with regional content for regional clinicians. I'm Alyssa Hathaway, a GP and family planning clinician and head of JCU's clinical school here in Mackay. This collaborative podcasting project between North Queensland Regional Training Hubs, JCU, and our local regional hospital and health services will bring you a different regionally relevant podcast each fortnight. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands where we meet today, who were the original providers of healthcare in this region. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Anna Kamond, who's one of the advanced trainees in rheumatology currently in Cairns. Welcome, Anna. Thank you for having me, Alyssa. It's been a long time coming. I'm excited to be here. It's, uh, it's amazing that you wanted to talk to us today about fibromyalgia. It's something that comes up often in general practice and is always there in the back of our minds as a differential diagnosis when patients come in with pain. Um, so it's a great opportunity to talk a little bit more about fibromyalgia. I wonder if we wanted to start with diagnosing the condition because we have lots of criteria that the patients need to meet, don't we? Yeah, that's right. I mean, fibromyalgia, I guess in general, is not everyone's favorite topic. And I know certainly with some rheumatologists, if you mention the word, they just look nauseated and want to lock their office door. So I feel like it's a condition that if you can handle the emotional turmoil that comes with it, sometimes it can be really rewarding. And I just found personally on my journey of fibromyalgia patients that I found it so rewarding if I managed to implement some treatment strategies that help them. But to kind of get back to the diagnosis side of things, I think the tricky part with fibromyalgia is that it actually isn't any individual patient diagnostic criteria that are validated. When I speak with a lot of, I guess, people from the general practitioner community, the main thing that they look at is that 2020 ACR criteria. And that's the one that's like the blue PDF document. We can send it in the notes, post this, um, that kind of has widespread pain index score, associated symptoms, that kind of thing. And I don't know about your experience with it personally, but I actually find that criteria a little bit wild with some of the things that's classified as other symptoms of fibromyalgia. I don't know, do you use it or do you ever look at it yourself? It's a really hard criterion to follow. And as you say, there's so much mm. emotional turmoil associated with diagnosis. People come in really clutching onto the idea of giving a name to their particular set of symptoms. And because mm. there's no one diagnostic test, trying to work through whether or not a patient may or may not have fibromyalgia is really hard. So difficult. And if you go in the, the diagnostic criteria with the ACR guidelines is, you know, to aid diagnosis, but not validated. And I think that in essence is the biggest difficulty with fibromyalgia. There is no one test. There's no one way to go about it. But if you look in that criteria, one of the things that it kind of mentions is other symptoms, including easy bruising and frequent urination and bladder spasms and itching and wheezing and just things that I personally would never attribute to fibromyalgia without quite extensive investigation. So I personally don't like or use most of that criteria. I just go off a sort of different flow, which I kind of run you through now. So I think knowing that there's no criteria is probably the most helpful thing. There's no tick box, like this many things. Yep. That's it. To start with when I'm meeting the patients in clinic to diagnose them, I just 
really open-ended questions and say, tell me everything about your pain. Realistically, we often have a sense of it with the referral before they come into clinic because there'll be things that GPs will mention, pain everywhere, inflammatory markers, persistently normal, can't figure it out. Is there anything you can do to kind of help it? Or to be honest, if they're in the waiting room and you look for the one with the fluorescent pink hair, that can also help things sometimes when you're trying to figure out who's who. To diagnose it, it's a lot about the history. Fibromyalgia pain is an unpredictable pain. And obviously it's very different for each individual patient. But the most consistent things that we tend to see is the migratory nature to the pain and the generalized soft tissue tenderness. When you're first asking about their pain and trying to differentiate whether or not it's inflammatory arthritis versus not. I ask them when they're telling me I have pain everywhere, I say, can you point? They'll kind of point to forearm, their shoulder, their thigh. I say, do you get ever pain recurrently in one specific area? And almost 100% of the time they'll say no. You know, it'll be this shoulder, that leg, this foot, my head. Whereas if you're thinking about an inflammatory arthritis or some other cause of the pain, it tends to be reproducible, recurrent, symmetrical, the same areas. Getting a good idea of their unpredictable pain that might migrates and isn't consistently over one joint, one muscle, one area, I think sort of starts that process and that idea that it's probably fibromyalgia. One of the questions I asked when trying to get an idea of their pain is I was like, do you ever just wake up and feel like you've been hit by a truck because it hurts in so many areas? And I would say there's a 99.9% hit rate of fibromyalgia patients being like, yes, everything hurts. And you can never tease it down to just one isolated area. It's never going to be their MCPs, PIPs. It's going to move. It's going to be sore at all random times of the day. And when we talk about inflammatory pathologies, which is ultimately what we're trying to differentiate when they come into clinic, their symptoms are always, you know, tend to be more worse in the morning, better the more you move them, really significant stiffness. Whereas with fibromyalgia, they will more consistently say it hurts at any time of the day. It tends to be worse when I'm active, Worse when I do things, worse when I move. Their history of the pain alone often is almost all you need in that it's com- the complete opposite of an inflammatory arthritis. How do we then decide that, yes, this is fibromyalgia? Is it just that clinical pain picture or would you prefer that we have no inflammatory markers being elevated, no other, excluded lots of other conditions then? Yes. First part is the history. So I spend a lot of time asking about the type of pain, associated symptoms, and I, in that initial history. I also try and get a flavor of previous traumatic events, their social setup, reasons why they might be particularly high risk of fibromyalgia, you know, like grief, childhood trauma, eating disorders, that sort of thing. Then next part of my diagnosis, obviously examining, which you just look, they're sore pretty much wherever you touch. And that's what we say is that generalized soft tissue tenderness or widespread pain index, step one, history, step two, exam. I think where we're really getting towards more diagnosing things, it's ultimately of exclusion, which is a frustrating thing for anyone to be told as like a physician. But they can and often do have dual pathology. You know, obviously I haven't been training for very long, only a year and a half, Um, but I have seen a lot of fibromyalgia and also in my general medical times, I've seen cases that have been labeled fibromyalgia that very much aren't. The basic investigations that I would do as things of exclusion to then work towards a diagnosis would at least be a CK. I find that that gets missed a lot, making sure that, because they often complain of myalgias. I would say inflammatory markers, which yes, ideally would be normal. Taking into account 
obviously with ESRs, the older the patients become, especially with obesity, an ESR is not our favorite test, but it's always still helpful. So I'd still recommend it. ESR, a CRP, a CK, and thyroid function are the bigger ones that I like to do as the basics. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, an ANA opens up a can of worm and that if it's positive, I'll get patients who'll come to clinic with the ANA printed out and like highlighted with pink and stickers on it being like, there you go, here's my lupus. I'm like, oh, who gave you that? Yeah. <laughs> Having a negative ANA can be very useful for us because if the ANA is negative, you know they don't have lupus and that way you don't have to pay as much attention to them answering yes to a lot of questions like fatigue, mouth ulcers, alopecia, mm. they often say rashes and the nuances with fibromyalgia history is they will often answer yes to everything because it's sort of like a psychosomatic kind of conversion of what they feel and what they think they're exhibiting on clinical exam. I, lo- I think it, an ANA in addition to the above is useful. And if it's positive, I would follow it with an ENA and C3 and C4 because by the time they hit clinic, that way you can say, yep, the ANA is positive, but their complements are normal. The ENA is negative. This isn't going to be lupus. I don't have to explore it. Whereas if their ANA is negative, you know, it's not lupus. You're good. You don't have to go down that road. So that would be at. And the other investigation I always do is iron, B12, vitamin D, just some fatigue related investigations because they're almost always fatigued. And the thing about it being of exclusion is if they have terribly low iron and low B12 and low vitamin D, of course, they're going to be tired and it doesn't matter how much I tell them to exercise, they're going to have to overcome those legitimate barriers as well. So that would be my initial Mm -hmm. bloods that I would do for a fibromyalgia patient that I see in clinic for the first time. Okay, so we've talked about the fact that fibromyalgia will have that really classic pain history that's poorly defined, Mm. pain everywhere, waking up in the morning, feeling like you've been hit by a truck not reproducible. It's not symmetrical. It's not fitting any of those other pain kind of conditions. And that often Mm -hmm. those markers will be normal. You've also raised the issue of some of those fibromyalgia mimics or the things we don't want to diagnose quite by accident, like lupus Mm. or hypothyroidism. What are some of the other things that we need to be mindful of when we're thinking fibromyalgia in the back of our minds, those other things not to miss? Yeah. So the ones that I would definitely not miss, as you said, so hypothyroidism, you know, any hematinics kind of deficiencies, lupus, but lupus is, tends to be a bit more like obvious. But the other ones that I've seen over time is obviously myositis. So having that obviously looking that it's not elevated because I have had a few patients who've had myositis, you know, that's sort of been grumbling along, treated as fibromyalgia. Other big ones I think not to miss is multiple sclerosis. And obviously that's a hard diagnosis. So I say that knowing that's probably really irritating, but if they are complaining of paresthesias, that's very common in fibromyalgia. And so what I do when I'm trying to tease that out in clinic is ask about that hot, cold insensitivity. So mm-hmm. you were thinking about in a hot shower, does it feel hot? Or when you touch ice, does it feel cold? Have you noticed any weird temperature sensations in your body? And I also try and ask if the paresthesias migrate. So if they feel tingly in one hand one day and one leg another day, that tends to not be as consistent with MS. Whereas if they give you a history to say that they've had tingling that started in their hand six months ago and that's still tingling, but now it's also their left foot or something like that, then I tend to go down that road a little bit more ask a few more questions 
questions about the temperature related things, family history, have a look at the demographics. And ultimately, sometimes I do order an MRI brain or C-spine. I have found probably two MS cases since I started. Mm -hmm. So I think knowing a little bit of the questions asked around MS would be helpful. And the other ones is probably, I guess, well, the other big mimic I think always making sure that the age-appropriate malignancy-related things up to date just because it feels terrible or it would feel terrible to miss it. And so if they're complaining of abdominal pain and bloating and GI upset, which again happens in a lot of fibromyalgia, making sure that, you know, their pap smear is okay, there's no blood in their poo and um, that they've had their skin checks and just things that if it's all found to be nothing and they're all good, then excellent. But you know, if they've had an ovarian mass and that's why they're so bloated, obviously, you know, you don't want to miss those things. Mm, yeah. Exactly. You, um, you touched on some of those other social things that increase the risk of fibromyalgia. Can yeah. you just talk through that a bit, please, Anna? Yeah, of course. So I think one of the things I like to tell other doctors when I'm talking about fibromyalgia being real <laughs> is, you know, because there are still people out there who genuinely don't believe it's a diagnosis. And I think that's wrong, obviously, being on this podcast. But when I was first trying to, I think I was a resident at the time, just doing some time in rheumatology. And I had a patient who was this very stoic woman in her 80s who had just lost her husband. And then she had been referred in by her GP for query rheumatoid arthritis. And she had this you know, beautiful classic story of fibromyalgia. And that was my first experience to say not all of the fibromyalgia patients are um, unpopular opinion, but like young women, more so Caucasian, like vibrant colored hair, all sorts of piercings, eating disorder histories, that sort of thing. It can happen to anyone. But the most consistent thing that I see is that they've had either profound grief and whether that's from loss or, you know, sexual abuse as a child or physical trauma or emotional trauma, there tends to be like an element of grief or prolonged stress in most of these patients that I see. So when I'm meeting them in clinic and I'm trying to get that open-ended question, I just say, so tell me about your life and where are you up to, blah, 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 just kind of get the conversation going. And then more so when I've got a bit of a rapport established, I say, you know, it sounds like you're dealing with a lot in life. You know, how are you coping with that? Is there anyone helping you? What's stressing you out? And normally in that conversation, you tend to find that someone's either had like a lot of abuse as a child or neglected as a child or had been in a car accident and since then has had you know, chronic pain. So there tends to be psychological, physical trauma or grief in most of the patients that I would see. So right. opening up uh, and that fits with it, you know, with the pathophysiology of fibromyalgia. Can you talk to us a bit about the potential pathophysiology of fibromyalgia? Yeah. So there's obviously a lot of people internationally looking into this because clinic around the world and general practices around the world are dealing with fibromyalgia. So there's a few sort of theorized mechanisms if we're talking in a pathophysiology biochemical way. And it's sort of thought to be a combination of genetic influences, environmental triggers and stresses, ultimately resulting in this abnormal autonomic and neuroendocrine function in your body. In terms of trying to study exactly what physically happens within them, so big cohort studies of fibromyalgia patients have shown associations between higher cortisol levels and pain ratings. There's thought to be maybe some abnormalities in the serotonin transporter gene, 5-HTT, I think it is, but I'm not sure. 
fibromyalgia patients tend to have a larger postural drop, um, lower heart rate variability, and this COMPT enzyme, which is something to do with um, catecholamines, I think. So there's there are some consistent and emerging biochemical abnormalities in patients. But for me, the most set pathophysiological mechanism is, how do I say it? When I'm talking to the patients, I say, if you imagine that your brain is a destination of somewhere, there are two roads that lead to this destination, only two, no other way to get there. When you have a thought or an impulse, think of it as something negative, like I'm worried about money. I miss my grandma. I look ugly today. Whatever we go through, that that thought, imagine it as like a car driving along one road and those thoughts just keep coming. So by the time you're you know, 20, 30, 40, that's traffic jammed. There's no room left there. So then you go to the other road, which is meant to be for pain. But if your brain is getting too traffic jammed, any impulse or any thought will go down the other road and just be turned into pain because your brain can't receive an impulse and do nothing with it. It's just not how it works. And we know that otherwise we'd all be the most relaxed people in the world. So once the negative path is kind of clogged up with all those nasty thoughts, then you're left with every thought and sensation and touch. Your brain just starts rewinding wiring it and sending it down the alternate road and saying pain, 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 rather than anxiety, stress, fatigue, worry, blah. I think it helps when I'm trying to explain something as complicated as you waking up feeling, I always say feeling ugly. I don't know why I say that to patients because I feel like we all do it. We all sometimes wake up and be like, I look like crap. But when you wake up and you have a bad thought, it, it can't go anywhere if you can't, are not processing your thoughts and your feelings and emotions, but your brain can't do nothing with it. So it's going to relabel it. It's going to call it pain. Yeah, right. Anna, you've talked Mm -hmm. about the difficulty or the caution that we need to have with interpreting inflammatory markers. Yes. and the need for that rheumatology <clears throat> review. Mm. Some of us don't have rheumatologists close by or it might take a long time before we get our patients in to see someone with a particular interest in fibromyalgia like yourself. Yeah. How can we better help our patients whilst they're waiting for that formal diagnosis or even if we are suspecting fibromyalgia and are unlikely to get a formal diagnosis? What's mm. going to be our best treatment strategies to start with for these patients? Firstly, just to touch on the abnormal uh, interpreting inflammatory markers. So the biggest thing I would say is that inflammatory markers are inflammation from anywhere. It's helpful to know on referrals and things as well, if it's happening at a time that they've had a chest infection or something else like that. But interpreting with age and obesity are probably the two biggest things. So say someone's 140 kilos and they have a CRP of six or seven, that's just not going to be significant clinically. Another thing I do see in that realm is when we're talking about ANAs, you would have seen the DFS70 pattern. We get referred that a lot, being like ANA positive DFS70. So that's actually an, an antibody pattern that's negatively associated with autoimmune disease. So you are less likely to have autoimmune disease in the general population if you have DFS70 pattern. I think that's a really helpful tip or for people to know to be like, rash, you're less likely to have lupus. I don't need to worry about this one. So that would be the two things about interpreting. In terms of treatment strategies, so say you've gone through all of the bloods we've spoken about, CK is normal, inflammatory markers are normal, they have a history that's consistent, general pain, hit by a truck, nothing helps, happens all the time. The things that I find is any investigations you haven't done, like that we've spoken about, having those underway so that you yourself can reassure your patient and say, you must 
muscle enzymes good and your thyroid's good and I'm making sure that we've excluded some of the nasties. So doing that kind of process. Finding something to image is great. Even if you look at it and you don't think there's anything there, I do find a big treatment strategy with fibromyalgia patients is having objective evidence to show them that there's nothing damaging them in their body. So I don't necessarily mean a top-to-toe MRI. You do see patients who've had that done. But I normally pick, I would ask and find it helpful. You pick an area, ask the patient where their worst pain is, you know, probably move and just x-ray it or ultrasound it or whatever you yourself think might be the best area to image that. Because being able to show patients, say, I've done these tests and I've done this imaging and nothing's being damaged, nothing's being destroyed. There's no deformities happening in your joints. It's okay while we wait for the rheumatologist. That sort of verbal reassurance with objective science to show some patients can be really helpful, but obviously selected based on what you think would be the most relevant thing to show them. But I do find at least one image of one area and reassuring them about that's good. In terms of the other like treatments type stuff, like initiating treatment, three main things, and they're all difficult to implement. A big part is explaining it to the patients about what it is, why it works, you know, the highway theory, that sort of mechanism, reassuring them nothing's being destroyed. The first one is obviously exercise. I explain it to them, to my patients is saying, when you exercise, it is a good stress, not a bad stress. And you're starting to teach that abnormal pathway and that abnormal wiring in your brain that you can feel stressed, but after it's over, you're going to feel better, not worse. And it's those sorts of repeated signals to the brain that teach it how to undo that traffic jam and undo that abnormal kind of wiring. So I try and really encourage exercise by explaining it as in when it's done, you get this wash of dopamine and serotonin and you're going to feel better and you do that again and again and again and you're going to trick your brain that it doesn't need to interpret everything as pain anymore there's some caveats to it i do say to the patients it will be very hard and you just have to stick at it so i don't sugarcoat it and say oh you go for one jog a week you're gonna be feeling amazing they won't (laughs) they'll feel terrible for the first couple of months as saying to them if you can commit to five to ten minutes of sweaty exercise a day so whatever that looks like for you walking up and down a steep hill near your house, pedaling on the exercise bike in front of your TV, going for like 10 laps of your pool, whatever it is, start by just initiating five to 10 minutes of getting your heart rate up. And that's what your brain needs to kind of make those changes and then go up from there. But you will be tired. You will feel wrecked. That's normal. That means it's working. Keep going. I try and really motivate them to know that it will be worse before it gets better. Like a plane coming up in turbulence. Say when you take off the plane, it's going to be really rocky and you're going to feel terrible and nauseous and tired. But when you're up high over the clouds, you'll really feel good. So kind of try and initiate that therapy is really helpful. Okay. So we've explained fibromyalgia to our patients and we've encouraged them to get onto the exercise bandwagon. What else can we do for them? The next step I'd address is some sleep hygiene strategies. And I can definitely send the fibromyalgia treatment sheet that I give my patients in clinic. Addressing the depth of their sleep and trying to change some of their sleep habit, it can be very, very helpful. And again, it's explaining to say, if you can't have good sleep, you're not going to be able to benefit from all of this exercise you've been doing. And so just simple things. I talk about the Headspace app or the Calm app before bed and avoiding caffeine, smoking, stimulants right before sleep, obviously avoiding blue light and just reading books in bed or magazines because a lot of them don't want to read books, but, you know, read in bed instead of watching stuff. And another big thing is, you know, try and avoid your larger meals within 
you know, two hours before sleep, trying not to nap in the afternoon when you're feeling that way. And just very simple sleep hygiene strategies to say complete oil change. You're going to be working out and sleeping eight hours in a few months. So sleep strategies is a big one. And then within that, you can start to touch on that pharmacological aids. I'm not a big fan of, you know, just jumping right in for certain medications, but in the sleep element, and a lot of the fibromyalgia patients have terrible sleep. I think it's very reasonable to do low dose amitriptyline, pregabalin, those sorts of things just to make them kind of sleepy and gooey right before bed if they need that extra addition. But I do try the non-pharmacological stuff for at least six months before I add that in. Right. And that's obviously taking into account their other comorbidities. And the reason I mentioned amitriptyline pregabalin is out of all of the things that we've been studying and looking at for medications, the medications that tend to have the best evidence is those amitriptyline, pregabalin, low-dose naltrexone, low-dose tramadol, geloxetine, and venlafaxine are the ones that have been proven to have potential modest benefit is how they summarize it, which is not very reassuring. But those are the only medications we know have had positive info within the fibromyalgia realms of medications. And so some of those will actually help with the pain itself too, won't they? Like the amitriptyline and the duloxetine. Yeah, well, I guess the way I say it to them is that those medications are mostly helpful because they're treating either some of your insomnia so you can get a restful sleep or they're potentially helping underlying mood disorders like anxiety or depression. But I actually kind of lean away from saying it treats your pain itself because the pain, it's sort of a, a central nervous system creation rather than a peripheral stimulus. So obviously we love pregabalin and amitriptyline for peripheral neuropathies. But I try and explain, if I give it to them, I say, this is to help you sleep and this is to help your mood. But as we discussed, there's nothing physically wrong in your body that we can see. So this is more about your headspace and your sleep rather than a damaged nerve because they tend to really lock on and conceptualize if something's actually wrong. So I try and say, this is just helping you sleep and helping your mood, da, 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 rather than your pain, if that makes sense. Sure. When Hmm. would we consider a pain medication for some of these patients? You know, sometimes they'll come in and they're already having regular Panadol osteo three times a day, or they've added in ibuprofen and they're really holding on to those pain medications. Do we try and stop those straight away or should we try and initiate some of those other non-pharmacological strategies first? Yeah, I just wouldn't use analgesic agents for treatment of fibromyalgia because it's not a nociception issue. Like it's not a peripheral pain stimulus that's binding onto something. It's very centrally mediated. So I wouldn't give any analgesic options. Um, Obviously, if they're low risk and you're just trying to pick your battle that day, if they come to you on some tramadol and regular panadol and things like that, I say, we'll look at that later. Let's focus on the non-pharmacological things. But outside of those medications, I mentioned I wouldn't give them any analgesic kind of agents because they don't work. And what you do find when people report benefit is actually they're just getting some sedation or some transient euphoria from the analgesic options rather than, you know, it it generally treating the underlying problem, which is their perception of stimuli. That's right. And placebo effect um, is so incredibly common, isn't it, with almost all of our medications? Yep. So, so big. And, you know, what you end up in those situations is sometimes patients who are on buprenorphine 
phenolphthene patches with sublingual boop and they're basically riding high on an opioid kind of dependency. It becomes just so much harder to motivate for the exercise, the psychology and the sleep strategies because you've started that pathway of almost addiction really. So I don't touch any pain relief stuff and I only go around sedation um, at night, only at night or antidepressants, anti-anxiolytics if sort of thought appropriate for their mental state. Anna, is there anything else that we need to know about our fibromyalgia patients before we finish up today? I think education is a big thing. Two more points. I'll send you a whole list of some of the websites that I use and some of the other things I show to my patients. But I do think that first impressions really matter. And for me, the most success I've had with my fibromyalgia patients has been when no matter how difficult it could be, I just bring it back to validation, compassion, listening, and very open-ended questions. And my success story that I like to tell people is that I have had a patient once who in my initial appointment had mentioned that she had survived being decapitated, um, which as we know is typically not a survivable injury. But we spoke about exercise treatment, strategy treatments, didn't say, no, that's wrong. That didn't happen. That's not real. Just let it all kind of wash over me. And I think being really conscious of not being judgmental, even if the story sounds insane, uh, really helps the patients think that you didn't just fob it off, know that it's fibromyalgia in the first five minutes and then start telling them to work out. You have to hear the story before you can make these recommendations. Otherwise, it's really hard to get them on board would be my, my closing thing. So fibromyalgia is a journey for the patient, but it's also a journey for the clinician. But the success, the reward at the end of that journey is massive for both of us. Definitely. And I think we sort of didn't really get a a chance to speak about the psychology element in there as well with between the sleep and the exercise. But obviously, if there's any identified anxiety, depression, even when I meet any of my fibromyalgia patients, I recommend at least a few psychology sessions and say, if you can teach your brain how to deal with the stresses of just being alive, then you're going to reduce the pain that you feel. So that's the only other thing I forgot to mention earlier, psychology, get it in there. It's good for everyone. We should all be seeing a psychologist. What an excellent point to finish on. Dr. Anna Kermon, um, advanced trainee in rheumatology, currently in Cairns, talking about fibromyalgia today. Thank you so much for your insight. We are so much more aware and better prepared for those patients who come in with that weird pain story. Thank you so much for all of your expertise. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really great to be a part of something that was trying to improve the quality of life of all of these patients. I really feel passionate about it. So thanks so much. For more information about The Roundup or to share your feedback and ideas for future episodes, visit nqrth.edu.au forward slash roundup hyphen podcast or contact us at nqrth.mackay at jcu.edu.au. We also want to advise that the views and opinions presented in this podcast are those of the speaker only and do not represent the views and opinions of James Cook University, Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs or Queensland Health. The content supplied in this podcast is not intended as medical advice and is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Northern Queensland Regional Training Hubs is an initiative of the Australian Government's Integrated Rural Training Pipeline and is facilitated by James Cook University in partnership with public and private hospitals, Queensland Aboriginal and Islander Health Council, Health Services, 
Aboriginal community-controlled health organisations and general practice clinics.